0: the 18th century German poet Heine quipped, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. This attitude that God indiscriminately forgives people is very common today, and it is an attitude that is born from two ideas, one of which is very true and one of which is very false. The true idea is that God is immensely gracious and merciful. Ephesians 2 says that God is Rich in mercy. Speaking of himself in Exodus 34, God says, He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The prophet Micah asks, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? God is immensely merciful. We should be really thankful for that today. But there's another idea that stands behind the sentiment that God will forgive me, that's His job. And this idea is quite false. And what this idea says is God's mercy and forgiveness should be presumed. And friends, that's a lie because it denies an essential attribute of God, which is God's justice. The same God who says he is slow to anger also says in Exodus 34 that he will by no means clear the guilty. In Ezekiel 25, he says, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Many times in Matthew's gospel already, we've seen Jesus warn about hell. So God is not only merciful, he is just and wrathful. Now, we like the God of forgiveness and mercy. And we are prone to believe the lie that the serpent hissed to our first parents, you will not surely die? That God's wrath is not real. Or if it's real, it exists for somebody else. But friends, wrath is truly the default position that stands over humanity. It rightly stands over each of us because of sin. And mercy is God's surprising work, not his presumptive work. And the mercy of God points us to the astonishing goodness of God, which... We're going to see in today's passage, but we're also going to see today the astonishing sinfulness of man as the Pharisees commit a sin that is so egregious that Jesus actually declares it to be unforgivable. And that's what we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 50. And today we're going to look at three truths. Number one, we're going to see the immense goodness of Jesus. Number two, we're going to see a terrible response to the goodness of Jesus that constitutes an unpardonable sin. And number three, we're going to see who it is that ultimately receives the mercy of God. So let's start with our first point, in which we see the immense goodness of Jesus. Since the middle of Matthew 4, Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee, and he's been preaching the gospel, telling people to turn from their sins to trust in him. He's performed the most amazing miracles, proving himself again and again to be the Messiah. And yet, Jesus' early ministry in Galilee was ultimately rejected. We've seen that large crowds of the common people were willing to flock to Jesus, but only so they could access Jesus' miracles, so they could benefit from His supernatural power. Matthew 11 tells us they would not repent. They dismissed Jesus' message and His lordship. And besides being rejected by the common people, the Jewish religious elites have also grown very hostile to Jesus. They've now made several attempts to discredit Him. But each time they try, their foolish efforts blow up in their faces. Again and again, Jesus is vindicated. Again and again, they are exposed as frauds and hypocrites. Last week, we saw that after the Pharisees were unsuccessful in trying to use the Sabbath law to discredit Jesus... They found themselves in a terrible place of desperation and hatred. Matthew 12, verse 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. The Pharisees' repeated failures to discredit Jesus don't cause them to look inward and say, Oh, well, maybe we're wrong about him. No, instead, they harden their hearts still further and go into this terribly wicked state of mind where they say, Well, maybe we just need to murder Jesus and that's where we pick up today. If you've got a Bible, look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, their murder plot, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus perceives that things between him and the Pharisees are getting quite serious now, and it's not yet the right time for him to die. And so Jesus does what he told the disciples to do when they face opposition go on to the next location. And in this new place, Jesus is again surrounded by a crowd. That might surprise us, because Jesus has told us the common people, by and large, have rejected him. But you know what the common people still like? If they don't like Jesus, they like his miracles. And who was in this crowd? Well, Matthew says all the people in this crowd required healing. So here we find another big group of desperate, sick people who are really just interested in Jesus' power. And you know what? Jesus doesn't close his heart to these folks. He doesn't say, well, you had your chance, but you didn't repent. No, Jesus is filled with compassion for these lost sheep, and we're told he heals every one of them. But as he does so, Jesus tells them not to make him known. Jesus' response to his rejection is not to launch a big PR campaign. I'm the Messiah. The Pharisees are wrong. No. He just continues about his work. He doesn't seek another fight. And as Matthew remembers this scene, he cannot but help think of another passage from the Old Testament. And that's one of the great themes we've seen throughout this book. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament's hopes and expectations. And here again, Matthew sees another prophecy that Jesus has fulfilled. Matthew chapter 12, verse 17. He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is from Isaiah 42, verses 1-4. through And when Isaiah wrote these words, he was disclosing seven centuries in advance what God's plan and purpose would be. God would send forth a servant, empowered by His Spirit, loved by the Father, who would reveal God's character, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And Matthew says, that's Jesus. After all, at Jesus' baptism, the Father declared, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Remember, the Holy Spirit visibly descended on Jesus. Jesus is this prophesied servant, and Jesus is the one who will reveal God and God's character to the nations. For most of this book so far, Jesus has just been ministering to Jews. But Matthew's told us from Jesus' genealogy onwards, every time there's a Gentile in the story, he points it out because he's foreshadowing that in the end, through Jesus, the Gentiles will be brought into God's kingdom. And now it's at this point. I think that we begin to start to see how God's going to save the Gentiles. And that is because God's going to allow the Jews to reject their Messiah. Just as the religious elites have already begun to reject him. And this rejection will allow for an opportunity for the Gentiles to hear about Jesus. But in quoting Isaiah 42, what I really think Matthew wants us to see here is the personal goodness of Jesus. That though Jesus has been vigorously opposed, as Isaiah says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Yes, when he is challenged by the Pharisees, Jesus answered their challenges, and he prevailed over them. But Jesus doesn't go looking for a fight. He isn't hostile. He isn't ranting. He doesn't go on social media to whine about how he's being victimized and why doesn't everybody like me. He doesn't stage a protest. No, Jesus accepts it because he's already told the disciples repeatedly. Persecution is the natural response that happens when somebody speaks God's word. And now that it comes upon Jesus, he doesn't grumble. And he doesn't let it stop him from doing God's work. He just endures. The opposition will rage for the time being, but Jesus continues his work. And as he does so, he is motivated by a profound love and compassion. Look at this. He says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is a really beautiful metaphor. Reeds were plants you could pick anywhere in Galilee. And they served a bunch of purposes from making music to all kinds of stuff. But reeds weren't very strong. They were easily damaged. And if you had a reed and it got damaged, what were you going to do with it? You Chuck it and you get another one, right? In the same way, back in the ancient world, they didn't have electricity. Everybody used candles. And if you had a candle and the wick stopped working, what would you do? you'd go get another one. They were pretty cheap. You could replace it easily. And the idea is this. These feeble items, reeds and wicks, represent people. There are lots of people in this world. Who do most of us gravitate towards? The successful, the beautiful, the intelligent, people who have it all together, at least they're good at pretending like they do. Who don't we gravitate towards? the sick, the downtrodden, the damaged. Most of us, when we encounter folks like these, are quick to push them into the margins of our lives or just cut them off. We dispose of them like a damaged reed or wick. But that's not how Jesus is. Jesus isn't only interested in the elites and the beautiful people. Jesus came and cared for and pursued those that this world spits upon. He had compassion for the neediest and most damaged people. We see that here as Jesus spends his precious time healing all these sick folks, a lot of whom don't really believe in him. Jesus doesn't view people as disposable, and we shouldn't either. Jesus gave his time to the hardest people to love. He didn't write them off. And praise God he didn't, friends, because most of us are among those hardest cases, right? And so we see Jesus' character here his long-sufferingness, his compassion, his willingness to invest himself in what this world does not value. He's doing what Isaiah said God's servant would do. And friends, this servant will prevail. He will bring God's justice to victory in this world, and the nations will trust in him. And why shouldn't they? His kindness and compassion should draw our love because he is a faithful friend to the friendless. And with a good Savior like Jesus, the only right response, as Matthew says, is to hope in his name. So friends, no matter how hard things get for us, no matter how isolated or alone we may feel, no matter how much we hurt or how much other people wrong us or dismiss us or reject us, if we have truly trusted Jesus... We're never alone. We're never forsaken. We have a true and a trusty friend who will see us through every pain in this life and who will bring us ultimate victory. Jesus is God's immensely good servant. But we come now to our second point, and here we find a really terrible response to the goodness of Jesus, which constitutes an unpardonable sin. We pick up now in verse 22, and again the scene has changed. We've still got Jesus and his disciples and a crowd and somebody who needs healing. But now the Pharisees are also present. And here's what happens. Verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Jesus compassionately performs another wondrous miracle, demonstrating his power over the supernatural realm by casting out a demon and over the natural realm by healing this guy. And this miracle astonished the people who saw it. Verse 23, and all the people were amazed and they said, Can this be the son of David? And that's the Messianic title we saw back in chapter 9. Now when we read this, we might say, Oh, finally, the people are starting to get it. But in Greek, the question is framed a little differently. It's more like, this isn't the son of David, is it? It's almost an incredulity to this question. The miracles, stupendous, as all of Jesus' miracles have been. The crowd said back in chapter 9, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the people's hearts are hard. And after centuries of awaiting a Messiah who would be this glorious, impressive king who would instantly vanquish Rome, they see this former construction worker from one of the nearby backwoods towns and they just can't quite bring themselves to acclaim him. But they wonder... But the Pharisees hear this, and they don't want the crowds to even wonder. So they try to smush this speculation about Jesus immediately. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. The Pharisees have this settled opposition to Jesus. They've made up their mind. We will never recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Because to recognize the Messiah, they thought, would invite a crackdown from Rome. And beyond that, they've had so many run-ins with Jesus by now. They just hate his guts because they can't get him. So they're never going to acknowledge Jesus. But they can't deny this stupendous miracle. They can't write it off as a parlor trick. It's just too amazing. And so instead, they repeat this lie that they've been telling since chapter 9. Well, yes, Jesus has powers, they say. But they don't come from God, they come from Satan. That's what Beelzebub means here. And I think the logic is this. The Pharisees think, well, if we can discredit the source of Jesus' powers, it doesn't matter how many amazing things he does, the crowds will turn against Jesus. Now, Jesus has heard this charge a few times by now, but he hasn't really dignified it with a response yet. But now that it's being wielded to suppress the crowds, just as they're starting to inquire as to his true identity, Jesus decides he's got to respond this time. And his response is quite lengthy, and it consists of three parts. First, Jesus shows that this charge, that he is satanic, is just stupid. And Jesus shows its stupidity by making three arguments. The first begins in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? What happens when a country winds up in a civil war? Is that a good thing? The country say, hey, we need to get stronger economically and military. Let's, let's, let's have a civil war. That'll help. No! Infighting is ruinous, right? Same thing's true in any community. Many of us have lived through church splits, right? Is that a fun experience? No, it's a disaster for everyone involved. Does any family say, hey, let's be divided for a while. That sounds fun. No. Jesus says unresolved division within a family destroys the family. It's not something you wish on your worst enemy. It's not something you sign up for. So if civil wars and community infighting and family division all prove catastrophic, why in the world would Satan declare war on himself? Because make no mistake, that's what Jesus' exorcisms are. Jesus is at war, liberating people from bondage to Satan. He is rescuing them and taking back territory from the domain of darkness. Why would Satan empower the destruction of his own kingdom? He wouldn't. That would be a suicidally ruinous act. So obviously Satan doesn't stand behind what Jesus is doing. But second, Jesus says in verse 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. In first century Judaism, Jesus wasn't the only person going around claiming to cast out demons. There were also Jewish exorcists who thought they could cast out demons. We meet some of these guys in Acts 19, the sons of Skeva. And in that passage, we see how they worked. Uh, For these guys, exorcism was a magical ritual. They thought if they invoked powerful names, they could command demons to depart. We don't know how much success the Jewish exorcism phenomenon had generally. We do know it didn't go well for the guys in Acts 19. They wound up getting beaten up by a demonized man. But the Jewish methods of exorcism were quite different than what Jesus was doing, right? Because Jesus just had power. He didn't need a ritual. He just said, go, and it was gone. But here's what Jesus says. I cast demons out of people. And you guys say exorcism is satanic. Only Satan can command a demon. But your own students go around commanding demons to depart from people. If the Pharisees really thought exorcism was satanic, they really believe this charge, why are they themselves practicing this this same thing? Their own practice of exorcism exposes their charge against Jesus to be false. This leads to Jesus' third argument, verse 28. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. It's stupid to think Jesus' power comes from Satan, But that leads to the question, well, where then does Jesus' power come from? And Jesus says, well, let me give you an illustration. Imagine the most powerful, well-armed person on the earth. And let's say you decide, I'm going to rob that guy while he's at home. How are you going to pull that off? Well, first, you've got to subdue him, right? Then you can take his stuff. Jesus says his exorcisms are like that. Satan's got immense power in this world. 2 Corinthians 4 says it's like he's a god over this world. But Jesus means to plunder him, to take what he has, the souls which are in bondage to him. But how can Jesus accomplish this? Because Satan's so powerful. And the answer is this. Jesus comes in a greater power. Jesus says he is performing miracles and exorcisms by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, God is infinitely greater than Satan. And God can bind Satan and enable Jesus to rescue people from Satan's clutches. And by doing this work through the Holy Spirit, By beginning to reclaim this world from Satan's clutches and plundering Satan, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Often we think about God's kingdom as only something future. That's not what Jesus says here. He uses a past tense verb here. He says the kingdom's already begun. And that's evident. Because by the power of the Spirit, people are being delivered from Satan's clutches. The captives are being set free. There's liberation and restoration beginning. The kingdom has come, not in its fullness to be sure. Someday all evil everywhere will be condemned. Someday there will be new creation and and total liberation. It hasn't happened yet. But the kingdom has begun to dawn. And isn't that what Jesus has been saying since chapter 4? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The miracles show the kingdom has begun. And the coming of the kingdom demands a response. People must repent. We must turn to Christ. They had to do that then. We have to do that today. That's what Jesus says. Turn to Christ. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Friends, there are only two choices. We can repent and side with Jesus, or we can remain in opposition to him and fall under judgment. Neutrality is not an option in this war. The kingdom has come, and so now is the time to be counted. As Joshua said in chapter 24 of his book, choose this day whom you will serve. Whose side are you on? You want to be with Jesus? Do You say, my sin is evil. I need salvation. I want to be under the reign of King Jesus. Or do you hold some other position? And any other position than that one is opposition and rebellion. Whether it's indifference, saying, ah, Jesus, I don't care what you say, I want to live my own life. Or whether you have intentional opposition like the Pharisees. Any response to Jesus other than repentant faith is lostness and is under the judgment of God. But tragically, the Pharisees will not repent. Even though they knew the scriptures... They knew what the Messiah would do when he came. They knew the miracles that were supposed to be performed. Even though they saw Jesus doing those same miracles, despite knowing who Jesus had to be, they said, we will never acknowledge him. They would oppose him to the end. And so now Jesus moves to the second part of his response. He's shown that the Pharisee's slander is stupid. Now he shows it's just unforgivable. This is a warning. Verse 31. Some of the most solemn verses in the Bible, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus here warns about the existence of an unforgivable sin a sin that cannot receive forgiveness in this world and that will never be forgiven across eternity. Let that sink in for a minute. That's a pretty terrifying thought, right? That there's a sin that can be committed, which makes a person's eternal destiny instantly hopeless, that guarantees condemnation. We need to know what this sin is, right? Well, what is it? Well, it's probably not the sort of sin we would expect it to be. It's not mass murder. It's not some sexual ultra-deviance. It's not suicide, as many have claimed. Although all of these sins are egregious and deserve God's wrath. But pardon can be found in the gospel, even for sins as horrendous as these. Neither is the unforgivable sin simply the state of unbelief. I've heard people say that, but I think that's really obviously false. Because unbelief is forgiven all the time. That's how people get saved, right? We turn from unbelief and believe in Jesus. And neither is the unforgivable sin dying in unbelief. Because while it's true, if you die in unbelief, you're going to be lost, the act of dying is not a sin. And the unbelief you have could have been forgiven throughout your life. Now, none of these explanations fit the bill. The unpardonable sin is a different, terrible act that puts someone outside of God's forgiveness or the prospect of it. So what is this sin? Jesus here says it's a type of blasphemy, but it's not blasphemy generally, because in verse thirty-one Jesus says people can speak words of blasphemy against Him, the Son of Man, and still obtain forgiveness through repentant faith in the gospel. No, Jesus says the unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? This is an intensely debated question and because the stakes are so high here, it's critical we try to get this right. And also friends, this is a very important pastoral question because often when people who are believers learn that there's an unpardonable sin, this knowledge sometimes leads them to respond with a kind of anxious terror. They begin to believe, maybe I've committed this sin and then Satan manipulates that fear to really oppress these folks and paralyze them in a sort of spiritual bondage which is why there are support groups that exist today for people who are afraid that they have committed this sin. Um, friends, I used to struggle thinking I had committed this sin because uh, the first time I ever heard about the unpardonable sin, it was explained in a really unhelpful and incorrect way, which caused me a ton of anxiety for a really long time until I spent time studying this issue. So from personal experience, let me say, this is a matter that we must approach with great care and clarity. So let's just start by looking at what the text says Jesus calls this sin blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and he defines it as speaking against the Spirit so this is a speaking sin it's not simply a thinking sin or an I had an intrusive thought trying to get me to curse at the Holy Spirit sin no this is an intentional willful verbal expression of evil now what might this evil expression be When we think of blasphemy, we might think of somebody ranting at or using profanity against the Holy Spirit, but if you look at our passage, that's not what the Pharisees do. In fact, the Pharisees never even say the words Holy Spirit. So what then is this blasphemy? Well, we get some clarity in Mark 3, which describes this same event. And there Mark tells us why Jesus gives this warning. He says it was because, verse 30, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The damning words here, which constitute an unpardonable blasphemy of the Spirit, involve attributing the Spirit's mighty works in Jesus to a demonic power. Why is this unpardonable? Well, I think we find the reason as we read on in our passage, Matthew 12, 33. Jesus says, "'Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil?' For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The idea here is simple. What you speak reflects what's going on in your heart. Jesus said back in chapter 7, you'll know the tree's quality by what fruit it produces. And here he points back to that same principle. Your life, and particularly your speech, show what's really going on inside you. And so what you say is immensely consequential. Jesus says, by your words you'll be justified. That is, your words will give evidence authenticating whether you really know God or not. By your words you'll be condemned. Your words may show you really don't know God. And on the last day, our words will be examined, and none of them will be found to be inconsequential or irrelevant. You know, the Pharisees might have thought this attack on Jesus, calling him satanic, was no big deal. They might have thought, oh, it's a debating trick. where we shut those crowds up, and we got a point on Jesus. They probably didn't think this was a big deal. But Jesus says, no, your words have eternal import. Because these words reveal something about the Pharisees' heart. And I think ultimately this is really the big issue that stands behind the unpardonable sin. The Pharisees had this unique position. They should have been the ones to say, that's the Messiah. But when the Pharisees saw Jesus and the work of the Spirit working through Jesus' ministry, what was their first thought? Did they give God glory for what He was doing? No, they saw Jesus' good work and they said, that's evil, it's satanic. Because to acknowledge that it was good would be to acknowledge Jesus. But they hate Jesus so much, they will not acknowledge what God has made obvious and beyond dispute. They saw the immense goodness of Christ and responded with hatred and hard-heartedness. They judged God's good saving work as evil. And they judged their own evil, blasphemous, murderous intentions as good. And friends, that's unpardonable. And here is why. There's only one way to salvation. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Matthew 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And how do we wind up having the truth about the Father and the Son revealed to us? Well, 1 Corinthians 2 says, nobody can understand spiritual things unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. The Spirit must enlighten our darkened minds and reveal to us the truth about Jesus. But if the Spirit gives us that clarity, that enlightenment, if He convicts us of sin and we respond by saying, no, my sin is good, not bad. If He reveals to us the glory of Christ and our need for a Savior, and we say, no, that's evil, what hope remains for us? How do you come back from that? when you have rejected the one and only means that can bring you to repentant faith in Christ. There's no other way you get saved but by having that illumination of the Spirit and responding with repentant faith. You get the illumination and you say, that's wicked, I don't want it. That's it. There's no way back. And that's what the Pharisees did. If they wouldn't believe in the face of the clear testimony about Jesus empowered by the Spirit of God that they saw with their own eyes, And they harden their hearts to that. What on earth could ever convince them? Nothing. Now, this brings us to another question here can this sin be committed today? There are many people who say that it cannot. They'll say, well, look, the Pharisees had a unique position. They were uniquely versed in the Old Testament, they got to see the the deeds of Jesus. They didn't just read about them on a page, they had a unique role. And so their rejection of Jesus was uniquely consequential and unforgivable. And those circumstances can't be repeated later. So they would say this sin is bound to that time and place. Uh, that's possible. I used to hold this view. Uh, but there are two passages in the New Testament that have changed my mind on the subject. The main one is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, which says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This passage is much debated. But on its face, the author of Hebrews seems to be talking about people who have received some substantial degree of spiritual enlightenment from the Spirit. They have grasped in some way the reality and the power and the glory of the gospel, and yet they've never truly believed. They stand at the doorway. They're fully aware the gospel's real and that they're in peril because of sin and that Christ can save them. And yet, even though they're that close, they fall away. They don't exercise repentant faith. They make a knowing rejection of what is true. And this is basically a form of the sin of apostasy we discussed back in chapter 10. A renunciation of Christ, either by explicitly denying Him, or embracing false teaching, or embracing some false lifestyle contrary to the gospel. And the author of Hebrews says when that happens to someone who has a full knowledge and a total clarity about the truth of the gospel, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance You don't come back from that. In essence, it's an unpardonable sin. Now, you've got to be careful not to make this passage say more than it's saying. I don't think Hebrews 6 is saying every apostasy is unforgivable. For starters, by the end of Matthew's Gospel, we see Peter. Peter denies Jesus, and yet he's forgiven. He's restored. Right? He spends his whole life serving Jesus. He dies a martyr's death. Moreover, people come back from apostasy all the time. In our postmodern world, many people seem to be Christians for a time and then they renounce their faith and quite often these folks later come back and wind up living exemplary Christian lives. And we would understand that by saying these folks' initial association with Christianity was not a true conversion. At that time in their lives they didn't really grasp the truth, they didn't really apprehend the reality and the glory of Christ or the depth and danger of sin. They were just going through the motions because Their family wanted them to or they were in some youth group or their spouse wanted them to play nice. But later when the Spirit did reveal the truth to them, they believed and they endured in it. Their earlier apostasy, that wasn't unforgivable, far from it. So I don't think Hebrews 6 is saying every apostasy is beyond forgiveness. But I think it is saying there are people who apprehend the truth to a profound degree, who do taste the reality of the gospel and who knowingly reject it. And in such cases, they cannot come back from that. And why not? Listen to what Hebrews says. He says, Because turning away from the enlightenment of the Spirit like this is to crucify once again the Son of God. The author of Hebrews says, To have true spiritual enlightenment towards the gospel and reject it is to recommit the sin of the Pharisees, who knew the truth, who suppressed the truth, and who killed Christ at Calvary. And the author of Hebrews says, we do the same thing if after we come to a true understanding of the truth, we renounce Christ. We are re-perpetuating, we are re-perpetrating the Pharisees' sin. And more than that, we expose Jesus to public ridicule. And there's no way back from that, the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 6, 8 says, its end is to be burned. Now, if this reading is correct, the unpardonable sin is not historically unique. It can still be committed. And the author of Hebrews seems to confirm this, I think, when he says, to do what I'm describing is to reenact the sin of the Pharisees. The other passage I'd point you to is 1 John 5, which for the sake of time I'm not going to analyze fully, but there the Apostle John warns about a sin unto death, which based on the way he uses the words life and death in the book, seems to refer to a sin that results in eternal death. And within the context of 1 John, John is talking about people who had a deep degree of spiritual knowledge, Who seemed to be of us, he says, but then they went out from us and they showed that they weren't. People who, again, made a knowing rejection of the truth uh, and apostasy. So I think when all three of these passages are put together, a clear picture emerges. If the Spirit of God reveals the truth about Jesus to us, we must respond with repentant faith. But if he reveals the truth to us in a profound and undeniable way, and if we apprehend it, and then if we knowingly say, I hate that truth, I'd rather have my sin, because my sin is good and Jesus is evil, then there's no pardon for that, because we've rejected the one and only means of grace there is. So friends, the unpardonable sin is real, and we must not commit it. Let me say there are some parallels to this scenario I see in the real world. I'm not going to say these people have committed this, but I would be very concerned for their eternal destiny. Nadia Bowles-Weber, a false pastrix, a female pastor, wrote a book in which she says the being who stands behind the sexual ethic of the Bible is Satan and not God. That sounds a lot like what the Pharisees said here. I've known a man who was a Bible teacher in this city for decades, who was the assistant pastor of one of the largest churches in town, who taught at our local Bible college, and who, after decades of spending time with God's Word and God's people, decided he was going to leave his wife and go live an alternative lifestyle and an alternative spirituality. I mean, that's the clearest example of Hebrews 6 I know of. I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong. But these things happen today. Friends, this sin, I'm afraid, can still be committed. But let me say this. If you are worried you have committed this sin, your worry is proof that you have not committed it. Because to be worried about committing this sin reveals a belief in the truth of God's word, a belief in the authoritative word of Jesus, a desire to repent of sin, a desire to be right with God, and a desire to respond to what the Spirit reveals to us. And all of these things are the exact opposite of the unpardonable sin, which is the total rejection of every one of those propositions. So if you're a jumpy person who's prone to anxiety, I don't want today's sermon to cause you to cascade into self-doubt and unhealthy introspection about, have I committed this sin? If you start thinking like that, please call me and let's talk. But what I want for you to take from this point is simply this. Jesus is immensely good, but people can be immensely hard-hearted. And we can look at the glory of Jesus and his wonderful goodness and say, I hate that. I want nothing to do with it. I prefer my own evil. And that is a terrible and a perilous place to be. And friends, if you are tempted to make that decision, being fully aware of the reality of Christ, and you say, I want to spurn the truth, because I, 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 even though it's true, I want something else. Friend, don't do it. Because there may not be a way back. And that's what Jesus warned the Pharisees. All right, so what's going to happen? He's warned the Pharisees. Are they going to backtrack their blasphemy? Well, at first it seems that some of them try to, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sounds like some of them are scared and maybe they're rethinking their position. Jesus, if you perform another miracle, maybe we'll believe in you this time. Well, that's good, right? No, not so much. Number one, because in Mark's account we're told they say this only to test Jesus. It's another trap. They're looking to set him up again. And besides that, their request is ludicrous. How many signs has Jesus performed that were totally incontrovertible? Signs that even the Pharisees admit were true miracles. Signs beyond anything found in the Old Testament. They want another sign? No amount of additional miracles would soften their hearts. Verse 39, But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights... In the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus won't perform tricks for these guys. He's done with them. He says, you're going to see one more sign. The sign of Jonah. You know, Jonah wound up in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Jesus is going to wind up in the tomb for three days and three nights, he says. Now, there's debates about exactly what that means. I'm not going to worry about that now. But Jesus emerged from the tomb on the third day victorious. That's the ultimate sign of God's favor. And that last sign, the resurrection, that's all the unbelieving and spiritually faithless generation that Jesus spoke to can expect to see. But you know what? They won't even believe that sign. That's how hard-hearted they are. So now this leads to the last part of Jesus' response to them in which he pronounces judgment. Verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Then behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was a really evil place. They heard four words from Jonah and they repented, even if it was for only a second. But Jesus said a lot more than four words to his generation. And they wouldn't repent even for one second. Jesus' generation is a lot worse and more deserving of judgment than Nineveh. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba went to hear Solomon because of his wisdom. Jesus had more wisdom than Solomon. And nobody had to go find Jesus. He went from town to town, but nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. And so pagans like the queen of Sheba will bear witness against Jesus' generation on the last day. Third, Jesus says in verse 43, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation with this evil generation. Here's one last illustration. Jesus says, think about a guy who's got a demon, and the demon leaves. Good news for the person, right? A respite from oppression. But what happens? Well, over time, his situation improves a little bit, but he's still vulnerable to being possessed again. And eventually, the demon comes back with friends, and he winds up in a lot worse shape than he used to be in. And Jesus says, this is like the generation I'm speaking to. They'd been in darkness and under oppression in the past from Rome and the Pharisees and other corrupt leaders, Herod. But for a brief season now, light has dawned in Galilee, has it not? Jesus has come and he has offered a way forward and true peace and true life. The people got a respite from their oppression. The demons were cast out and they were healed. But they weren't interested in believing in Jesus. They were like the man who was free from the demon but who is still vulnerable. And now because they've rejected Jesus, the respite for this generation is over. Now things will be a lot worse for them going forward. And indeed, within four decades of this, almost all of these people Jesus is talking to would be dead, many would be slaughtered in a horrible war with Rome, and then they would be eternally condemned by God. This massive second point we've looked at is terribly bleak. And it tells us a hard truth, which is that people are really hard-hearted. We prefer the darkness to the light because our deeds are evil. And so even though Jesus is immensely good, people often reject him with outrageous hatred and sin. And friends, that only leads to the wrath of God. But thankfully, this is not how our passage ends, because we come now to our last point, which is quite brief but quite encouraging, I think. And here we see who it is that receives the mercy of God. Look at verse 46. While Jesus was still speaking to the people. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. So Jesus is concluding this exchange, and someone comes and brings him news. Your families come from Nazareth. And why have they come? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. In verse, chapter 3, verse 21 of his book, it says, Jesus' family went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus' family, including Mary, who had heard from an angel about Jesus has concluded Jesus has lost it. All this commotion, and what's he saying about himself? This is crazy. Let's go get Jesus and calm him down at home. But Jesus isn't going to submit to being controlled and domesticated, even by his family, because he's about his father's business. So verse 48, When he replied to the man who told him, he said, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. In a sense, this had to be heartbreaking for Jesus. His family has written him off as nuts. But in this moment of deeply personal rejection, what does Jesus say? Even though his family has rejected him, he's not alone. And not just because the Father's with him, but there is still an earthly family that Jesus loves, who he's close to, who he loves, and who loves him. He's talking about his disciples. Jesus regards his people with the most intense affection as his truest family. Now, thankfully, in time, Jesus' biological family, if we want to call them that, they repented of their unbelief. After the resurrection, in Acts 1, we see them all with the disciples in the upper room praying, worshiping Jesus. At that time, his biological family, if you will, becomes part of his true family, the family of faith. But what I want to say to you today, friends, is if you have trusted Jesus, you are a part of Jesus' family of faith. Ephesians 1 says, In love, the Father has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 says you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. God has adopted you into his family to make you an heir alongside Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Is Jesus owed great glory and honor? You bet. Is he going to inherit the new creation? You bet. And you know what? If you trusted him, you will too. Endless glory and joy and bliss. And in addition to this, you receive total forgiveness from your sin. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he moved our transgressions away from us. Colossians 1 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And friends, I think this last point is is really precious. Friends, we are the intimate friends of Jesus if we know him. That's what Jesus says. He says, those who do the will of my Father in heaven are my family. And What's the will of God? You know, to respond to what Jesus has been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, if you have trusted Jesus, you are his bosom friend, and you will experience the mercy and love of the triune God forever. And so I want to finish with this today. Hebrews 4.7 says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, Hebrews 12, 17 says, Esau, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Friend, if the Holy Spirit has shown you the reality of the gospel, the truth of Christ's deity, death, the resurrection, then let today be the day of salvation. Do not put it off, because you may never get another chance to respond. And I'm not just saying you may die today. I'm saying the Spirit may not reveal the truth to you tomorrow. So turn to Christ and do not waver. And do not turn away. But friends, if you do know the truth, persevere to the end. Do not be drawn away by the lure of false teaching or the false pleasures of sin because Jesus is so immensely good. He doesn't discard his people. He loves us to the end as his own family members. He bestows pardon on us. He lets us share in the inheritance with him. So don't fall away. Because falling away will show you never belonged to him to begin with. And if you fall away, you may never find the narrow road to life again. Friends, if you know someone who is apostate pray earnestly for them and pursue them with the truth because the stakes are just so high. Isaiah 55 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon